Welcome to the Revelation Podcast. We're so glad you're here today. In today's episode, Dr. Neil Sawatsky looks at the question, will there ever be peace on earth? To hear the answer to this question, here is Dr. Neil Sawatsky. As I was going through my mind, heart, and above all scripture, I said, it looks like peace on earth is the message for tonight. If you recall that there is much to do about that from the New Testament announcement about coming the Lord Jesus Christ coming into the world, the announcement was that there would be peace on earth. So my focus tonight is to speak to you about this great subject. But I'm not deviating from my Revelation studies. So we're getting right into the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation, and there in verses 1 through 10, now I'm not going to deal with all 10 verses, I'm going to skip some in the middle. I'm going to read them all tonight, but I'm going to skip some in the middle. We'll come back to that on another occasion. But I want to take just one part of the subject that we find in verses 1 through 10, and you will see what that is when we begin reading. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them, and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads, or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are on the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. I want for us to begin by looking at this chart on eschatology. Now, those of you who've been to Bible college, or uh, if you have not been there, let me just clue you in that if you are uh, studying in the areas of theology, you will get theology one, theology two, theology three, and then theology four. Uh, it goes in succession, and each area of theology deals with just a different emphasis, and you get from the basics right up to that which is the most complicated. So, 
when you come to church here on the Sunday night, you come to the most complicated. This is theology four. This is not something that first and second and third year students get in Bible school because the idea of Bible school, Bible college, was to get young people grounded in the Christian life, in the idea of God and what he has done and all that is dealt with in the first three years. But in the fourth year, you get a heavy emphasis on the eschatology. For those of you who are wondering what eschatology means, it's not an English word. It's anglicized, so it's a Greek word, which means the doctrine of last things. So the doctrine of last things obviously is not going to come into a program that is uh, designed for younger students. It's going to come for those who have stuck it out three years, and then they're going to then they're going to go ahead and delve into this. So how do we do this in church? Well, like we do Sunday nights. We just preach the Word of God, and, and we let things fall where they will. And this is where we are tonight. For some of you, this is just a refresher, what I'm talking about just for the next couple of minutes. For some of you, it might just be a whole bunch of confusion. And for some of you, it'll be brand new, and you say, I get that. Okay, so I'll understand that. So hopefully... Hopefully we'll get a few people that'll go from I don't know to I get that. And to those of you who are saying, well, I'm already there, say, okay, just strengthen my resolve and strengthen my belief. Now, what I'm going to try to do is just explain to you that there are really three major emphasis on the doctrine of end things. None of these are new. They have been around. There's a fourth one that is relatively new. <clears throat> and I'm going to just mention it. I'm not going to emphasize it a lot. But the first one, and that's very old, is the doctrine of uh, millennialism. And I think that most of you know by now what we mean by that doctrine. It's, it's the ah uh, mill. It means no, no millennium. So you have people out there that actually believe that there's no such thing as a kingdom coming on earth. So uh, they, they discount what we have just read in Revelation chapter 20 as just being a spiritual picture of something really bad. And uh, they don't look at that as anything that could actually be literally true. And so the Amillennials have since the days of Augustine, that goes back into the year 300 AD. So the Amillennials have been around. And uh, as you notice on the bottom of the chart, there's that little word there that says many denominations. And I'm going to get to that in a few minutes, but I'm just going to stop there and say that when it comes to the doctrine of amillennial, there's not just one or two groups out there. There's there's many. Uh, the second one is postmillennialism, and that one is a little strange bird. It doesn't hold very many adherents today. It's not the popular one. There was a time when it was the popular idea that there, uh, that Jesus Christ would come after an earthly kingdom. So that after the earthly kingdom, after the reign of Christ, after the utopia situation in the world, Christ would then come on earth and take uh, Christians home to be with him. And of course, we have the doctrine of premillennialism, which became a driving force maybe around the 1700s. It became the popular expression of biblical views amongst conservative and fundamentalists. It did not get a hold of the liberal, did not get a hold of the neo-orthodox, did not get a hold of people that don't have a literal view of scripture, but 
It got a hold of the brethren. It got a hold of people of Baptist persuasion. A number of Mennonite conferences got into it, and so there was a strong move towards premillennialism. just want to mention to you tonight that one of the great battles out there today is to be able to maintain a sense of truth about which of these doctrines are correct. These are being thrown to the wind. There's another, which hasn't registered anywhere, that's called panmillennialism. And that's where a lot of people who are not really students of the word, they say, I believe in panmillennialism. And I say, what is that? And they say, everything will pan out. You know, they're not wrong. Everything will come together. No doubt about that. It's just a good idea to know what will come out. All right? So that's the three major. There's this thing called preterism. You'll see at the bottom of the word amillennial. This preterism simply means that everything is already done, finished, complete. So in 70 AD, the Lord came back, and uh, anything about any kind of a kingdom is finished. The rule of Jacob has finished. The uh, scepter has not departed from Israel till Shiloh comes, and that sort of thing. It's now finished, 70 AD. So they believe resurrection has happened, and they believe that there is absolutely no future prophecy, so they don't deal with prophecy at all, because they don't believe there is any such thing as prophecy. Can these people be evangelical? Can these people be Bible believers? Well, you'd be surprised. You meet them. Some of them have a very strong testimony of faith in Jesus Christ. So I don't want to get into too many details about that. As you follow through to the bottom of the chart, you'll notice a color change that issues out of premillennialism. That is a blue line that follows down into three major divisions in the premillennialist presentation of the coming of Christ. Now, there's a fourth one that has come, a Johnny come lately. I'll mention it, but didn't put it on the chart. The first one is post-tribulationism, and that's when uh, where people teach that Christians will go through the tribulation for the seven-year period, and they major on Matthew 24 and 25 that the elect will survive and those who endure to the end shall be saved so that you live as a church through the persecutions, you live through the church through the tribulation, and then in the end, if you somehow have managed to survive, then the Lord will take you up to heaven. That'll be the pre-millennial rapture, but a post-trib time as far as that rapture goes. Then there's a group that believes in the mid-tribulation, that everything goes pretty well for the first three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week, and then in the middle of Daniel's 70th week, you have the Lord coming for his own and taking them home, and uh, then they are raptured in the midpoint of the tribulation, and then, of course, you have the pre-trib, and you'll notice that the word fundamentalist comes under the word pre-tribulationism because if there's a, if there's a church that believes in pre-trib rapture of the saints and rapture of the church, it's most likely a church that says the Bible is literal and true and we believe it all. That's most likely where you will find. You're not going to find pre-tribulationism amongst people that have doubts about the Bible. Doubts about doctrine, doubts about things. They're not going to espouse that. They're just going to throw that out. All right, so what it is, is your biblical interpretation, the science of biblical interpretation. Okay, it's called hermeneutics. And what you've got is you've got on the one side, you've got the allegorical approach of interpreting Scripture. One of the most famous things that you hear amongst these uh, folks is that 
Well, you read this, and it all depends on how you interpret it. Well, you hear that over and over again. It all depends on how you interpret it. It really does. Like if you were, for instance, if you're trained in allegorization of the scripture, or spiritualization is what it is, but it's allegorization. If you were trained that way, then you would say, well, this is your view, but the allegorical method doesn't go with your view. And it certainly does not. It's no apologies and nothing fuzzy about it. The allegorical view of Scripture does not coincide with what we teach and what we preach. Then you have on the other side, you have the literal view. And what we believe about the Bible is you take it literally. Unless anything literal just doesn't make any sense at all. If it doesn't make any sense, then you look at what does that Scripture actually represent. Other than that, you look at it from a literal perspective. That's what makes the doctrine of final things so fun. That's what makes it so exciting. You know why? Because it's real. You can put you can put your finger on it, and you can say, "Black and white. Here's what the scripture says." And the allegorical, you can't say, "Here's what the scripture says." And the allegorical, you can say, "Well, I think this is what this passage might lean toward." I don't do well under that kind of teaching, and I I wouldn't submit to it very long. That's for sure. So, who are the churches and denominations that are amillennarian? I want to give you a little story with all of this, okay? So I think that some of you already know the story, but some of you do not. First of all, I want to just mention to you who are categorized as amillennial denominations. Which groups of people? Which churches? And you have, first of all, you have the Eastern Orthodox and the Oriental Orthodox. By the way, Hank Hanegraaff, who is called the Bible Answers Man, how many are you equated with that? with that word, okay, Uh, extremely smart man, he came out of the Herbert Armstrong movement, became a Bible defender, Bible answers man, and then recently he joined the Orthodox Church. Well, it's not too surprising because even while he was the Bible answers man, he did not believe in a premillennial pre-tribulation return of Christ. He fought it all the time. He would argue against it. So you did not get the teaching of that from Hank Hanegraaff. The Roman Catholic Church, for instance. I don't know how many of you have ever been to a Roman Catholic Church. I don't think there's very many here. I think there's one or two of you. Whether you understood what they were teaching or not, but they are based on Augustine's theology. So Augustine was the inventor of amillennialism. Roman Catholicism, of course, accepted that with part of his teaching. So the Roman Catholic Church has a position of all mill. Lutherans have a position of all mill. The reformers, the reformed churches, whether it's the Christian reform, the old reform, the new reform, the reform form, and get the reformed Baptist, you get the reformed Mennonites, you get the reform anything, and they're all all mill. You can be, you can go to the bank with that, because you are not going to find a church that has reformed doctrine because reformed doctrine is a millennial. And therefore, for somebody to say that we're going to accept Reformed doctrine will also accept amillennialism. There's some more. There's the Anglican Church. There's the Methodist Church. And did you know that the Amish are all mill? Do you know that the Old Order Mennonites are all mill? Did you know that the conservative Mennonites are all mill? So, all of you here, to some degree, are either equated with Mennonites. How do you come from a Mennonite church background? You attended, yeah, almost all of us did. There's a good number. Here's the little story that I want to tell you, okay? The little story that I want to tell you is this. When, uh, when Lois and I moved here to Ontario from Saskatchewan, 
we were asked by the Evangelical Mennonite Mission Conference if we would do the English department of their ministry, and a number of you were there at that time when that happened. Well, it wasn't long, and they elected me as the president of the Education Committee in Ontario so that I became not only involved in the early start of the church, but also in in the education of churches, started the Bible school here at Aylmer, and uh, was a part of that. And then, by the way, it went by the wayside eventually, too. But but I was the driving force at the beginning of it, and I remember lecturing and convincing and talking to people about the need for a Bible school to train our own young people here in the Elmer community. I also discovered, because I was in the committees of the convention, I also discovered that there was a change being talked about, and the change that was being talked about was a constitutional change for the entire denomination. The constitutional change for the Evangelical Mennonite Mission Church was that they wanted to eliminate premillennial doctrine from their constitution. Somehow, they were called the Rudnaviders. Are you acquainted with that term? If you're English, you won't know, but some of you are acquainted with that term. That's what they were called to begin with. And they had had the influence of premillennialists, and so when they got going, they were a premillennial church organization and denomination. But now it had come to light that those who had gone to Eastern Seminary in the U.S. of A., they had decided that they're going to accept the doctrines of Eastern Seminary, and Eastern Seminary is Reformed in its theology. It is absolutely amill. And so some of the leaders within the EMMC convention had gone to the school, and they came back, a man who carries the same name as I, though we're not related, much older than I, I guess he could have been my dad by age-wise, but he had gone there. And he was an intellectual type, and, you know, he would speak like an intellectual, even with the lips quivering, you know, that, that sort of thing. But, you know, I'm making fun of him, but I always enjoyed him very much. But he came and he said that we are proposing a change for the Constitution. And I said, well, that's something that I would like to just look into, so I did. We, we, I came back and said, I cannot agree with this change. I, I said, I cannot. And they said, why can't you agree with this change? And I said, well, because I'm a literal. I, I interpret the scriptures literally. I interpret the scripture at face value. I interpret the scripture as they are written. And I said, your constitution is suggesting that we move away from the, from the literal interpretation, from the literal hermeneutic of scripture, and that you're taking us to an allegorical interpretation of scripture. And I said, this is a very, very unwelcome thing in my mind. And I said, I certainly will not be supporting this. So it wasn't one meeting, it was meeting after meeting, and then, boy, did I ever get a lot of trips out to Winnipeg, free of charge. Phone call came, Neil, you're going to come to Winnipeg because we need to talk to you, and so when am I coming, okay? So ticket here, you go to Winnipeg, and you go talk to the big shots in Winnipeg, and we would sit down, and they would try in every which way to convince me to join with the convention in what they were proposing to do, because this was not to be for the church here down the road only, this was to be for all of the churches in Canada, in, of the EMMCs, straight. So here I am, looking in the red faces and angry faces of the head bunch of the EMMC, and I said, I, I, I'm sorry, folks, but, but I said, I cannot be convinced against my will. So I said, I, I just don't see what you're seeing. I don't believe what you are believing. And so what they said was that, you know, you should look into it deeper, and if you look into it deeper, you will agree with this. And we heard that so many times. 
when they decided to change the Constitution, they agreed with it over here, and they said, yes, we will go along with it. This is what the convention wants. We're going to do this. So I said, you have my resignation. I said, I am no longer a conference minister. I am finished. They said, what? I said, yeah. I said, to me, this is serious stuff, and I will not walk with this. Uh, Pastor A. Friesen will remember he wasn't there for that exactly, but he was there at the convention meetings and all of that. And when I came back and told the men of the church at that time, it was called Christian Fellowship Chapel, I said, I'm, I have resigned, so therefore I'm not your pastor anymore. I'm out through footloose and fancy free, so I'm not preaching tomorrow. And so the men gathered together and they said, we do want you to preach. And I said, but I can't. I'm no longer of this denomination. They said, we want you to preach. So I did. And so, needless to say, they pulled their young people out. They pulled everybody related to them out. And here we are, a small group, just starting all over again. Never grown very, very large. But the issue, folks, the issue was never a personal one with that group down the road. There was not one person I hated. There was not one person I was mad at. There was not one person in the greater convention from Winnipeg on that I was upset with. I was not angry with them. I took issue with a doctrinal change, and it was a doctrinal change. If you read the Book of Mennonites in Canada, you'll see my name there, and they have written there that I was opposed to the doctrinal changes from premillennialism, that I was opposed to their view on baptism, and that I was opposed to their view on the security of the believer. And those things are accurate. When they judged my motives in that history book, that was not accurate. But what they said was accurate. So that went down on the record. So I do appreciate the fact that they did do that. And anybody reading those books could say, okay, those are the three reasons. And here I am, 2018. This happened in the mid-70s, 1974, 5, something like that. And uh, 2018, and I want you to know those three things, I still believe in just as I did back then. Why? Because I have a biblical hermeneutic. I don't go by what such and such said. I don't go by what's popular today. I don't, I don't do that. I go by what is the principle, what is the science, what is the method that seems to best present the entirety of Scripture and not some man-made spooky ideas. Uh, okay, that's where... Your, your whole, and I, I said, okay, you, you guys are all going to go down the road of amillennialism. You can uh, ask any of those you want to. The Churches of Christ are a group of people that are amillennial, the Christian Church, the Disciples of Christ, the Christian Churches and Churches of Christ, the Churches of God, both Church North and South in Elmer, are amillennial to the core. This just happens to be something they strongly believe in. The Association of Grace Baptist Churches in England might I also refer you to the Jarvis Street Baptist Church of Toronto, one of Canada's most famous Baptist churches, if not the famous Baptist church of our country, is thoroughbred, amillennial, to the core. Have absolutely no place for premillennialism whatsoever. And there would be many offshoots, because they do have a seminary. They do send students out. And I preach to some of their churches, and while I can preach the gospel in them, you don't deal with prophecy in those churches because they will not accept premillennialism. Presbyterianism. Now, Presbyterianism, there's a strange ball of, of fire out there with them, but most of them are all millennial. You can check that out too. Who are the post-mill representatives? I don't want to labor this long. 
Uh, I just want to mention to you that there are some names that some of you will recognize. Uh, David Brown, the Hodges, Dr. Arch, Archibald, and Charles Archibald, and Dr. Casper Waster Hodge. These are writers and authors. Dr. Shedd, some of you will recall his sermons. Dr. Robert Dabney, Dr. Henry B. Smith, Dr. Augustus H. Strong. How many of you have Strong's book, that theology, Strong's books, and theology, uh, and all of these reference numbers? But yeah, a lot of you do. By the way, a phenomenal scholar and a great help. I use Strong every single week. But I don't sit down and read his theology book. I use some of his academic finesse. Benjamin Warfield, some of you will recall that name. David Brown, Charles Hodge's Systematic Theology. If you go to Systematic Theology, you may have Hodge. Uh, you may have Strong. You may have a few others, not a whole, whole lot of there. Schaefer and some others, and I'm trying to think of the other name. I, I think that some of you know, and I just forgot his name tonight, that there is systematic theology, but they're all into the, either all-mill or into the post-mill. These were in the post-mill. James Snowden was in the post-mill. This is Victor Hugo. Name familiar with anybody? Who's familiar with Victor Hugo? What's, what's the book he wrote? Les Miserables. You imagine a German having a French accent, Les Miserables. What would make you think he'd write a book that would become a play, would become a movie, would become a musical? What would make you think that he would write that just by looking at him? He didn't look like a very happy man. Let me read this. It's just, I find it very interesting. This goes back to 1850, 1860, something like that. He said, citizens, the 19th century is great, but the 20th century will be happy. Then there will be nothing more like the history of old, and we shall no longer, as today, have to fear a conquest, an invasion, a usurpation, a rivalry of nations, arms in hand, an interruption of civilization, depending on a marriage of kings, on a birth and hereditary tyrannies, a partition of peoples by a congress, a dismemberment because of the failure of a dynasty, a combat of two religions meeting face to face like two bucks in the dark or on the bridge of the infinite. We shall no longer have to fear famine, farming out, prostitution arising from distress, misery from the failure of work, and the scaffold and the sword, and battles and the ruffianism of chance in the forest of events. One might almost say, there will be no more events. We shall be happy. The human race will accomplish its law. As the terrestrial globe accomplishes its law, harmony will be reestablished between the soul and the star, the soul will gravitate around the truth as the planet around the light. Friends, the present hour in which I am addressing you is a gloomy hour. But these are terrible purchases of the future. A revolution is a toll. Oh, the human race will be delivered, raised up, consoled. We affirm it on this barrier. Whence should proceed that cry of love if not from the heights of sacrifice? Oh, my brothers, this is the point of junction of those who think and of those who suffer. This barricade is not made of paving stones, nor of joists, nor of bits of iron, 
It is made of two heaps, a heap of ideas and a heap of woes. Here, misery meets the ideal. The day embraces the night and says to it, I am about to die and thou shalt be born again with me. From the embrace of all desolations, faith leaps forth. Suffering brings hither their agony and ideas, their immortality. This agony and this immortality are about to join and constitute our death. Brothers, he who dies here dies in the radiance of the future, and we are entering a tomb all flooded with the dawn. Well, now, if that makes you want to go see Los Miserables, you uh, probably won't want to. This was kind of like 18th century will end everything that's miserable and only happiness is coming. <laughs> oh, I must say to you that happiness alone is not coming. And uh, he didn't uh, have a right prediction. The question that I want to bring to you first, and I'll try to wrap this up fairly, fairly quickly tonight, but the first question that I want to bring to you is the question of Revelation chapter 20 says that Satan will be bound. And the question is, why must he be chained? If you recall the very first statement I made tonight, and that was peace on earth. You remember that when Jesus was born, the angel said peace on earth. As long as Satan is free, there cannot be peace on earth. As long as he is out there, there's no peace on earth. It cannot be achieved. Because you get two people set up peace, all of a sudden they're going to be at each other's jugulars. It's just, just the fact of life. Just Anybody that has any long period of friendship, any long marriage, anything that goes well, any long church that goes well, uh, somehow the devil has not had the effect that he desires to have, but his desire is to have a negative effect on everybody. Every church, every marriage, every family, every person. It doesn't matter. His will and his purpose is to hurt us. So in verses 1 through 2 of Revelation chapter 20, we have this amazing statement that, that there's an angel that comes and he has a chain in his hand. He has the key to the bottomless pit and he's going to take Satan. He's going to lay get a hold of that dragon. Which angel that might be is not, is not actually told us. Most likely Michael, because he was God's number one warring angel, so it's possible, but it doesn't matter who it is. But it's an angel who has somehow received enough power from God that he can lay hold of the old dragon. Not only that, but that he can chain him up and he can bind him with a sentence of a 1,000 years without parole. So he goes into prison for the 1,000 years we see in verses 1 and 2. Here's the reason why Satan is bound for these 1,000 years. Number one, because of his effect on earth's kingdoms. What effect did he have on the kingdoms of the earth? First of all, in Luke chapter 4, verse 6, And the devil said unto him, to Jesus, he's proposing something to him, and he said, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will I give it. Who gave it to him? Adam gave it to him. Uh, was Adam was disobedient to God in the garden. If Adam would have been obedient, he would not have given up the keys to the kingdom. But Adam gave it up. He turned it over to Lucifer and said, there you go. And Lucifer here is saying to the Lord Jesus, 
that which was delivered to me, that which was handed over to me, I'll give to whoever wants. I'll give to whoever who will take it. If I see a worthy person, and he saw in Jesus Christ a worthy person. You see, he wanted, he wanted to give Jesus the kingdom. Well, why would he want to give Jesus the kingdom? Because he would still be in control, that's why. And because he would be in control, he would then say, if you just bow down once to worship me, you can have all the kingdoms of the world. I don't care. Do anything and everything so long as I have the controlling factor. That's what Satan does. All right, then in uh, the second place, because of his power of death. Now, here's something that can be a little scary. Think with me on this because it's scripture. We read in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. So question is, who had the power of death? Who had the ability to bring death into the world? Do you think that the Iraq, the Afghanistan, the Syrian, the Yemen wars that have been happening since the early 2000s, 18 years or so, many wars preceded that, of course, but I'm just talking about current day. Do you think that they're of God? Or do you think there's somebody orchestrating death over there? How many people have died at the hands of ISIS fighters where they come alongside and just got a hold of somebody's head and sliced it off and then held it up to be viewed by the world? This is of God or this is of Satan? You know that Satan has inspired wicked men, has inspired people all over the world to commit death. And so he motivates people towards that. Every murder... Everybody that gets stabbed, everybody gets shot, everybody that gets killed on purpose by someone else has been incited by, motivated by, and taught by the devil who has the power over death. But remember this, in Revelation chapter 1 verse 18, the Lord Jesus said, you do have the power of death, but I do want you to notice this, that I have a greater power than you do. You will not kill anybody that I'm not going to let you kill. All right, look, just look at the verse. He said, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. So you can take comfort tonight that if you are in the hands of God, if you're in the hands of Christ, Satan does not have free reign over you. Satan does take people captive at his will. Satan does have a powerful effect over people, and he does have the ability to kill, it seems like, but no one except that God gives him that uh, permission to do so. There's another scary thing, and that is he has power over sickness. I know that there are groups of people today that like to blame every headache and every toenail hurt on the devil. They like to say, well, that's a demon that's infested you, and that's a demon who's doing this. You need to exercise the demons out of your life and that, that sort of thing. And I know that there's a strong movement, not only here, but all over the world. It's a very powerful movement, in fact, but I do want you to notice this, and that is that Satan does exercise power over sickness. He's going to make you sick if he can. He's going to give you a headache if he can. He's going to give you a heart attack if he can. He's going to give you everything that will be hurtful to you if there's any way. Listen to what he said in Job 
what God said in Job chapter 2. He said, So went Satan forth from the presence of the Lord, and he smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. Would you say Job was sick? Was the sickness from God or was the sickness from Satan? I think that we can clearly understand and see that the sickness was, that the sickness was from Satan. He, 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 he did a lot of damage in Job's family and Job's environment, a huge amount of damage, but he came before God and God said, look, you can go ahead and test him. You go ahead and do anything with him. You cannot kill him. If you take away the shelter from him, he'll curse you because he's only loyal to you because you protect him. Well, I want you to know something. Because of your loyalty to God and because of your faithfulness to God, he protects you from evil that you could not even imagine could happen in your life. So it's a very good idea to walk with God. Very good idea to be submitted to the Lord. You're not just ruling in the rule of men. You're not just working in the rule of men. You're working with satanic power in the world. The fact that Satan was able to sift Peter, listen to what the Lord said to Peter. He said, And the Lord said unto him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. Let's go back to that verse and just, just contemplate that for half a second or two. Satan had a strong effect. Peter failed very, very miserably. He failed so badly, it took a lot of repentance and a lot of weeping on Peter's part to get things in order. He had just let go. Why did he let it go? Because he had given room to the devil to come and to sift him as wheat and to try to have him so he would become ineffective. Perhaps the devil knew that this man would become the prominent evangelist that he did become. And perhaps because of some sort of insight, some knowledge about that, he wanted to destroy him before he had the ability to do that. First Corinthians 5, Paul gave the church some instruction when he said to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Do you mean to say that, that some people can be delivered to Satan so that he will destroy their flesh? What does that mean? It means that he has control and perhaps even remove them from this world. Dangerous, dangerous thing. We read that Satan weakened the nations. And I could read all the verses here, just one verse. Isaiah 14, verse 12 through 17. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? You see, the nations should be like they will be in the millennial kingdom. That's how the nations should be today. But they're not. The reason that the nations are not as they will be in the millennial kingdom is because they have been weakened so that now you've got every leader in every nation that is a fallen creature that has all kinds of baggage and the only reason he's the leader is because of those who protect him. That's the only reason. He has weakened the nations. The nations like North Korea who believe that the more uh, nuclear forces they can build, the more weapons they can build makes them strong. No, it just makes them weaker. It just makes them tools of Satan to try to kill and destroy more is all that that does. Lucifer. Michael, the archangel, just would not even argue with Satan. So here's the angel probably that arrested him. But it was this angel who did not argue with Satan. He just did not try to stand his ground against him. We read in Jude verse 9, yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. Why do you think the devil wanted to do with the body of Moses? 
we're just studying Moses in our Wednesday night Hebrew history class that we're doing here. And the fact is that according to God's word, Moses was the top prophet ever. He said, I have not anyone like him. And I think the devil wanted to make short work of Moses. He wanted to make short work of his body. Wanted his body and death. So Michael did not even argue with him about that. So when Michael came to take care of the body of Moses, he was contending with Satan. And Satan wanted to take the body of Moses. But Michael durst not bring accusation against him, a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuked thee. Do you know what power you have against Satan? None. You know what the solution is? The Lord rebuked thee. The Lord rebuked thee. Draw nigh to God, he'll draw nigh to you. As God draws nigh to you, Satan doesn't want to be around you because he doesn't want to be close to anyone that's close to God. So the question then is, if these are the reasons, and there may be others, but if these are the reasons as to why Satan has to be bound, does it make sense to you that if he's got this kind of clout all over the world, from nations to individuals, even to into the churches, even into godly men, if he has all of that, does it stand to reason that if there's going to be peace on earth, he's going to have to be bound? He's going to have to be taken out of the way. To be taken out of the way so he has zero effect upon the world. So as he is put by chains, by the chain of God, he is placed into the abyss, whatever that bottomless pit is, he is placed into that abyss, and that abyss is closed up so that now Satan has zero influence over the world. He has zero influence over the kingdoms. He cannot kill anyone. He cannot make anyone sick. He cannot harm anyone. The world is freed for a thousand years from the arch enemy of God and from the arch enemy of all that is good and right. A great day coming. That's when what Victor Hugo said would be a reality, when there will be no more hurt, everything will be just... But that's kingdom, that's not year 2000 or year 2018. So why will Satan be loose from the abyss? If having him tied up for the thousand years, losing his effect in the world, why spoil the moment by letting him free? Because it's a good thing. Where's that peace? There's a phenomenal temple built in the Jerusalem area at that time that's called the Kingdom Temple. I haven't any time to go there now, or I don't know if we will in this series of studies, but, but a phenomenal temple that is yet to be built where people will be worshiping and honoring and everything will be about God and singing the praises of God for a thousand years and People will say, isn't it great never to be sick, never to have flu, never to have heart attack, never to have anything that makes us feel sad. Boy, we got lots of things that makes us feel sad. But in that kingdom, not a, and I don't know why people would even deny the kingdom, because it is a utopia. It is heaven on earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in heaven and in earth. That's what the prayer of Jesus was. Well, some suggestions. We read in verse 7, and when the thousand years are expired, the thousand years will come over. Let me just come back to this thousand years. This is where all our millennials, they just, they deny the literal aspect of the thousand year kingdom. What they'll do is they'll tell you that there's only one time that in the Bible, only one passage in the Bible where a thousand years is mentioned. That's in Revelation chapter 20. 
guess what? The right, that's the only time the thousand years is mentioned. But the greatness of the kingdom permeates the Old Testament. The greatness of the kingdom permeates the New Testament. The greatness of the kingdom permeates the book of the Revelation. And it is specified in Revelation chapter 20. They miss too much. They deny too much. So when the thousand years expire, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations. All right, so the nations have built strongly and they have come together in the kingdom era just... And, and they're all obedient. There's not a king in any of the nations, not a prime minister or queen in any of the nations that makes any decisions except they go to Jerusalem, which will still be the capital of Israel at that time. They'll go to King Jesus, who sits on the throne of his father David, and they will consult with him about every law, about every detail of the ruling of their nations. No one is going to be a free willer to do his own thing in the millennial kingdom. Jesus Christ reigns with a rule of rod, iron, strength, and control. Not like it is now, where he gives men the liberty to make their own foolish decisions, but where he rules and directs. So, all of these nations now, and, and thinking a thousand years with relatively no death, the world's population, by the way, then having 20 kids would be affordable in the kingdom era. So that won't be any problem. Maybe having 40 or 50 kids, 100 kids, who knows. And he shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, that's the northern part, Russia on down, to gather them together to battle. You see, Satan, again, no sooner does he come out of his thousand-year prison, and the first thing he does is he wants to make war. So who's behind the wars in the world? You know it. So he's let out, and this is what he does. And, and, and guess who sides with him as soon as he comes out of the bottomless pit? The number of whom is as the sand of the sea. What does that mean? So you've got all of these multi-millions of people who are in the kingdom era. They're under the rule of Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Son of David. They are obedient there's no satanic influence. Nobody could say the devil made me do it during that time. There's no devil to make him do it. He's hidden away somewhere. It's in a hole. So he is released. He comes up to the first king, Russia, Turkey, Germany. All of these nations, are, that's where Gog and Magog is. He comes to the first one and he says, hey, we're going to go and finally destroy Jerusalem. They said, we've always wanted to destroy Jerusalem, and we're going to go and we're going to destroy Jerusalem, and we're going to destroy the man that sits on the throne in Jerusalem. We're going to finally get rid of him. And so all of these nations, let's do it. But wait a minute, what about, weren't these people that were in the kingdom of God, weren't they on the kingdom of, yes, but here's what happened. The only people that entered into the kingdom of God were saved, born again, blood-washed believers in Jesus Christ. 
no unbeliever entered the kingdom, not even one. So when the seven years of tribulation are finished, there's going to be a remnant, and that remnant will enter into the kingdom. We will rule together with Christ in the kingdom, and these people will be obedient, because there isn't anything there to incite evil. There's nothing there to, to tempt them. And so they just go along with it. They obey. They just kind of are there, and they're doing what is expected of them, and there isn't this rebellion that is out there today. It's, it's just not, everything is peace on earth and calm, and everything is just happy until Satan comes. Ah, right. They follow him because that's the natural inclination of the human heart that is not regenerated. So these people in the kingdom, if they did not believe in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, they will be unsaved just like the person of today, just like the person of history. If he did not respond to Christ, he's an unbeliever, which makes him a heart of evil, a heart of unbelief, a heart of rebellion against God. And that's the kind of situation you have in the millennial kingdom these people come out of the kingdom, immediately they show what they are. Yeah, you know, I kind of thought he was controlling too much over there in Jerusalem. I kind of thought that, uh, you know, he's just uh, he's just trying to lord it over us. I, I think we should get rid of him. I think we should just have done with him, and that's the end of story. That's just the way that the human heart is even after they have been in the presence of Jesus Christ. Remember Judas? Three years, saw, heard everything that Jesus did amongst the people. What was his heart like in the end? Because his heart never surrendered to Christ, his heart was evil. And so the kingdom comes to a close, and every as the sand on the sea, not just the odd nation, not just the odd person, but as the sand on the sea, and they rise up and their intent is to go to Jerusalem and to fight against the Lord Jesus Christ. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city, that's Jerusalem. And then watch this. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Not a happy ending for Satan and his gang. Not a happy ending for mankind that will not surrender and submit to Jesus Christ. That's how it will be when that kingdom era comes to a close. Four strong reasons for his release that I just want to run by you to demonstrate that man, even under the most favorable circumstances, will choose sin if left to his own doing. Number two, to demonstrate the foreknowledge of God who foretells the acts of men as well as his own acts. Number three, to demonstrate the incurable wickedness of Satan. He's not redeemable. There, I mean, I've heard the odd person, not very many, but I've heard the odd person say, you know, maybe the devil could be saved. What? He's irredeemable. He is wicked. He is wickedness. He's not doing evil. He is evil. There is no redemption for the person that defied God. There's no redemption for that. The person that sought to usurp over God, there's no redemption for that person. So here's the incurable wickedness of Satan. And number three demonstrates that's why he needs to be released so that finally it could be seen 
what he really is. And number four, to justify eternal punishment, that is to show the unchanged character of wicked people even under divine jurisdiction for a long period of time. So even though people come under the influence of Jesus Christ, the King, the righteous, it doesn't change them. How many people are there who hear the gospel invitation over and over and over again and they just keep on saying, no, we're not interested. How many times are there people have been confronted with the Lord Jesus Christ in their communities and neighborhood and they say, please leave me alone. I'm just not interested. Folks, that's the world. Thank God for those in the world who do respond. You did, I did. Thank God for that. And there are still others that will. But the truth is that mankind as a whole will not. Mankind as a whole, because of the fall way back, they've decided that the way of Satan is a better way. So what's Satan's final destiny? His final destiny is seen in verse number 10. The devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and forever. I want you to realize that the lake of fire and brimstone, Satan is destined for hell since his fall. Hell does not end one's existence. Every being, spiritual or earthly, is forever. We read where the beast and the false prophet are. They didn't just go there and disintegrate. They didn't just go there and annihilate. If they're burning for a thousand years, guess what? They'll burn for many thousands of years more. And so now Satan is cast into the very same place where the beast, remember the beast and the false prophet, they're cast into this lake at the, at, at the ending of the tribulation period so that the two imitators there, they're gone. Satan is incarcerated. And now at the end, when everything is demonstrated as to what he is all about and he is fully exposed, now he lands up there. So the day is coming when evil will be destroyed. Evil will be gone in the days to come. Hell is a place of conscious torment. And he shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. There are only two choices. We have the choice of glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. Sounds like a pretty good choice to me. Sounds like a really decent offer. It was not in vain. It was not lost to the wind. In a long time coming, peace on earth shall come. There's Satan who is evil. If you like this, John eight forty four, year of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father. Our Father, we look at a very grim subject tonight when we look at the devil and his end. But Lord, we're really enthused and really excited because there is an end to the devil. As far as any influence, as far as anything to do with this world, we thank you, Lord, that he is going to meet his just due in the day to come. Lord, we're so sorry for those who have been deceived by him and those who follow in his path. Lord, if we could change them, we would. We know that man must decide for Christ. Lord, perhaps there's someone here tonight that should decide for Christ. As we sing and as we invite, may the heart of men and women be pricked to say that I will follow Jesus. 
And so, Lord, we ask you not to pass us by. May your spirit minister to us. May the gospel be effective in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us on today's podcast. If you're in the Elmer area, we would love for you to come and visit our church. For more information, visit openbible.ca. You can check out our show notes for the website.